Our whole modern consumer culture is, is predicated on, on everyone remaining invisible, right? We're a service economy. Most jobs are in service work. You don't see hotel housekeepers who clean your room. You leave the room in the morning. It's filthy. You come back. It's, wow, this is so great. You know, like little, little angels cleaned it up. You know, you, you're served in a fast food place and, you know, you're supposed to have a 90 second turnaround time and it's just arms, right? You don't see a face attached. Even sometimes in a restaurant, you don't look at the waiter. You can't remember what your waiter or waitress looks like. Like it just arms. So that service economy, um, you know, feeds the way we look at, at fast fashion and the way we look at fast food. And I mean fast food now in terms of fast agriculture, not just McDonald's, but, you know, industrially farmed berries, you know, which are the leading produce um, item. For example, Walmart uh, gets one in four American grocery dollars and their leading item is berries. Right. And so those of us old enough to remember when berries were just a summer treat, we're so pleased that, you know, I wasn't it happened in my adult lifetime. Writing this book, I thought all this stuff happened in my adult lifetime. I wasn't really paying attention. All of a sudden there were these beautiful berries year round. Right. Where did they come from? Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label, distinguishing soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock under the organic seal. You just heard from Dartmouth College professor and labor historian Annalise Orlick. Annalise is the author of We're All Fast Food Workers Now, and in this episode, she shares what she learned while doing research about the struggles faced by farm workers, as well as some of their organizing strategies and paths to victory. Please remember that if you'd like to support the work we do as we take on the money and power in industrial agriculture, you can visit our website at realorganicproject.org and sign up to become one of our thousand real friends. Now let's get back to the conversation between Dave Chapman and labor historian Annalise Orlick. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast, and my guest today is my old friend Annalise Orlick. Welcome, Annalise. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So Annalise is coming. I invited her to talk about labor justice. Um, Annalise has written a number of books. She's a professor at Dartmouth in the history department. And her last book was We're All Fast Food Workers Now. Let's start with that. We'll just dive in. How, How did that book get its name and what is it about? Okay. It's the subtitle is The Global Uprising Against Poverty Wages. And the book got its title from an interview that I was doing with um, a bunch of labor activists in Florida. And the, the coalition was home health care workers, fast food workers, and adjunct professors, which seemed like an unusual um, an usual labor coalition. And so I said that to them at one point. I said, you know, for this old labor historian, this is a new kind of working class solidarity how do you how did you guys come together and you know the professors talked about how much they'd learned from the home health care workers and the fast food workers in terms of solidarity and strategy and you know how to plan a you know a protest and a strike but one guy by the name of Keegan Shepard who was at the University of South Florida said you know they tell us that our advanced degrees make us special and if we're just quiet and we don't make trouble then one day we'll get those secure tenure track jobs. He said, but that's just a lie um, to silence us because the truth is we're all fast food workers now. So what does that mean? That means that, you know, a generation or two ago, people were employees, often employees for a lifetime. They got benefits. They had a chance of mobility, you know, in the company. They had, you know, opportunities to, to prove themselves, prove their loyalty, but also prove their talent. Uh, In this generation, it's very different from adjunct professors to grocery store workers to farm workers to, um, you know, chemists in legal pot labs to whoever you think of, Uber drivers. Everybody is a contract worker, a so-called contract worker with no security, with no benefits, with no, um, you know, no coverage under labor laws, no coverage under overtime laws or... um, you know, safety codes, health codes, none of that applies to them because they're not employees. They're independent contractors. And so that's what this graduate student, Keegan Shepard, meant. We're all fast food workers. It's the same. 
And indeed, professions we think of as really secure, such as the professoriate, are now poverty professions, highly insecure, people working two, three jobs, just like fast food workers, finding themselves unable to pay rent, sleeping in their cars, driving Uber at night to make extra money, all of it. Um, and so that's what that book is about. And, and it's about farm workers, um, retail workers, fast food workers, um, and small farmers, the people who work the land. So for farm workers and fast food workers, this has basically always been true. I mean, there weren't fast food workers until, yeah. until maybe a generation ago, yeah. but uh, there have been a number of people in the world who have been treated very badly in the workplace, but you're suggesting that that number is growing now. Yeah. And that the professions that used to have protections from unions and from even from public awareness, that that's changing. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, and I think that we're seeing it very starkly right now during the pandemic because those who have been declared, quote unquote, essential workers, which means they can't stay home to work, they're required to go to work. Uh, they can be fired or, you know, sanctioned if they don't go to work. Um, you know, those essential workers are, you know, everything from, you know, from teachers to subway car drivers to farm workers. And, um, and farm workers are, are among the least protected and they've suffered some of the highest rates of COVID because farm workers, especially migrant farm workers who are housed by farmers tend to live together in bunkhouses. They eat at long tables, right? They even shower together. They work in the fields close together. Um, and so the spikes, uh, in, you know, everywhere from, Florida to California to our own state of Vermont have often been uh, in places where farm workers live and work together. Yeah, they take buses to get to the work from the housing. Yeah. So there's a story that you told me, and I've told it to a lot of people because I think it's such a powerful story. Could you talk about the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire and what the import was of that in, in American labor history? So the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was a model, modern factory, garment factory in New York City in the early 20th century. And um, a lot of the women who worked there had been part of a major strike a couple of years earlier in New York called the Uprising of the 20,000. It was the biggest strike by women in American history at that time. And they had... Um, demanded many things, the right to unionize, uh, you know, limits on the hours that they work during the day, um, and, uh, and into piecework, and some safety. And the union itself actually bargained away their final uh, concern about the shops themselves and the um, grass linen. It was this very, very fashionable fabric that shirtwaists were made out of. It was one of the most popular and, and chic fabrics of the moment. And it was, it was a kind of shiny, <laughs> stiff linen uh, that was incredibly flammable. And, you know, in the bargaining process, some of the union negotiators who are men agreed with the company owners, you know, these women are always worried about dirty shops. Um, you know, this is just a, this is a cosmetic issue. Well, in fact, what happened is when someone threw a cigar and it missed an ash can, one of the foremen threw a cigar on March 25th, 1911, um, it, the flame jumped out and the, and the um, grass linen caught fire up and down the aisles of this factory. And, um, you know, it, it burned so hot that, uh, you know, the women rushed. It was an eight-story, it was actually, yeah, it was an eight-story building, nine-story building. And this was on the seventh, eighth, and ninth floors. So the ninth floor folks were able to get out when the building caught fire. The seventh floor folks were able to get down in the elevator. Those on the eighth floor in the middle were stuck. And so women rushed to the doors of the factory, but the doors um, opened in, not out, right? And so they piled up, their bodies piled up against the doors. Um, one of the doors may have been locked, which the owners did to prevent so-called theft. Um, and at the same time, so the doors were then blocked and, and women rushed to the windows. And, um, and they stepped out and this young, young boy who worked in the shops, there's, there's images of him. It was a horrifying image because it's a warm March afternoon in the middle of Manhattan and Greenwich Village, where then is now rich and poor lived fairly closely together. And he helped them out and they jumped 
um, off of the eighth floor of the building, and the velocity by the time they, they came to the ground was so strong that the, net, the nets that the firemen uh, had were worth nothing, and people crashed through. And so people in the city saw 146 young women die in half an hour, and um, it, it changed a lot. It changed a lot. It, it made real what had been existing for a long time in the American workplace, which was the frequency with which people died uh, just going to work. And one of the people who watched that fire who lived around the corner was a social worker by the name of Frances Perkins, who would go on to become Franklin Roosevelt's labor secretary, the first woman cabinet uh, member in the United States. And she vowed that she would spend the rest of her career working to make sure that nothing like this ever happened again. And with a lot of the workers uh, who she befriended and a lot of labor activists and the Roosevelts themselves, um, she became the architect of the American Social Welfare State, the Social Security Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the National Labor Relations Act that give workers the right to unionize. Fair Labor Standards protects, you know, against, it's what gives us overtime, the weekend, um, you know, protects against horrible conditions, all of it, unemployment insurance, workman's comp if you get injured on the job, in many ways arises out of Triangle. And this book arose out of the 100th anniversary of yeah. Triangle Fire. So... You've told me that, and you yeah. told me about the 100th anniversary, and I want to ask it, but before we go there, just to understand that this terrible event actually was a turning point in American labor history. Yeah, it was. And Be yeah. a lot of the success of uh, building in laws to protect workers, a lot of the success of, of the unions came out of this catastrophe. Yeah. So it was a big deal. It was a big deal. There were um, There were six... Uh, young women who died who were never identified, and they had a funeral for these unknown victims. They were identified a few years ago, but um, at that time they weren't. And they had a funeral for these unknown victims, and 400,000 New Yorkers lined the streets, right? It was, it was a powerful event in the life of the city. And, and these young women's bodies were um, arrayed in these makeshift morgues on the sidewalk. And, and, you know, for a couple of weeks, the people in the city saw family members of triangle workers going by with, you know, lights and looking into the coffins and trying to identify the burned bodies and see if they could figure out who, who their relatives were. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible sight. And it really did galvanize this consensus that it isn't okay to, as a country, we feel it isn't okay to expect people to put their lives on the line every single day, you know, just to go to work, just to make a living. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and so, so Francis Perkins and some of those who were active in the strikes that led up to the fire that happened in the two years before the fire uh, became active in trying to pass labor legislation. And it started in New York State um, under Governor Al Smith, who was the representative of the district where the fire took place and who visited the family of every single victim. So it was very personal for him. Um, under his administration in the late 1910s, Francis Perkins helped pass all these labor laws. And, you know, it went from New York to Illinois to Massachusetts. The industrial states um, began to pass laws protecting workers. And then, you know, when, when Perkins followed FDR to the White House in 1932, um, these laws became national. So, and, and we'll go to the anniversary now, but the reason it was a big deal is because it touched people, not just, not just the hearts of garment workers. Right. It touched the heart of our culture and that people who weren't garment workers, people who weren't even in low paying jobs responded and said, this isn't right. Right. Well, that's why it mattered that, I mean, there were people dying on the job all over the country, but mostly they were in hidden steel towns and coal mining towns and mill towns. And this took place in a chic Manhattan neighborhood on a warm March afternoon. So the estimate is that something like 10,000 people watched um, as these 146 young women died in New York then, as it is now, uh, along with L.A., but really in New York was then most the epicenter of media in the country. And uh, so newspapers came and there were photographs and there were um, political cartoons and there was a trial of the factory owners after the fire. Um, and Harrison Blank, the factory owners, uh, put... You know, and it would put the victims on trial. They they do what's done now, right? Where they, you know, they said they were these 
immigrants. They panicked. They were hysterical. They were, you know, the, the Jewish workers are overwrought and hysterical. The Italian workers, they called cows and said they were like bovine in their submissiveness. I mean, really nasty stereotypes. And, and they got off. You know, I think they ended up paying something like $75 a family, which even then was an insult, um, you know, to the people who'd lost loved ones in the fire. And so, yes, so, so the impact of the fire spread beyond, you know, the usual workplace disaster. Yeah. So let's go up 100 years. And you spoke at the, at the anniversary, I think. So yeah. could you tell me about that, what that was like? Well, I put it, I put it together with, along with artists and labor people in New York. And one of the things that we were concerned about is the fact that the Triangle Fire is taught as a turning point. You know, it's, it's you know, when I, when I used to do professional development lectures for uh, history teachers, you know, K to 12, uh, they all wanted to talk about the fire because it made the past real in a, in a profound way for their students. And, you know, we talked about a lot of ways that one could teach such a difficult topic. But the, the story always was that this was a triumphal event, right? that it was our reminder of the bad old days before unions, before labor laws, before safety protections. And so what those of us, and again, union people, artists, historians, what we wanted to convey is that in the 21st century, in 2011, there were many, many people working in jobs that were just as dangerous as those um, in the Triangle era. And, uh, and so the book really had its start in... Uh, this moment when uh, Kalpana Akhtar, who's the leader of, of a movement of garment workers in Bangladesh, where many of our clothes are made uh, all over the world. Bangladesh is the second largest clothing exporter in the world. Uh, she got up on the stage where 100 years earlier, the strike of the 20,000 had started. And it was very emotional because uh, she evoked the spirit of Clara Lemlich, who started that strike by jumping up and interrupting all these labor leaders and all these people who told the women not to strike and jumped up on the stage and said, I have something to say. I am one of those girls who's suffering you're talking about. And I move, we go on a general strike and everyone threw their big hats in the air and they went off on strike. So Kalpona actor, you know, was coming from Bangladesh where uh, there'd been an incredible movement of hundreds of thousands of garment workers, you know, striking, shutting down highways to the ports where, you know, where the garments, where our clothing is shipped out all over the world and, and experiencing fires, many, many of them. And she got up on stage and she said, I have something to say. And she looked out into the audience in the first row of which was the 95-year-old daughter of Claire Lemlich, who had stood up 100 years earlier. And... She said, in Bangladesh, it's not 2011, it's 1911. And what she meant by that was that in terms of what workers' wages could buy, the hours they worked, the safety conditions, the, the disrespectful conditions, the sexual violence on the shop floor, all of it was no better than in 1911. And so I, that's where I really kind of was electrified. And, and, and other people got up to speak who were also in the world's most dangerous jobs, taxi drivers, fish plant processors. Um, uh, these women who worked on what they called the slime line in Mississippi catfish plants spoke. Coal miners, um, still one of the most dangerous professions in the world. And, you know, as they all spoke, I began to think about the labor conditions around the world. And everywhere I went, I found that it's 1911 all over the world, including in the United States, the globalization of agriculture, garment work, um, and electronic production, so many of the industries that are central to our current way of life, um, has meant that um, the conditions, the, you know, there's, there's been a race to the bottom, lowering wages, lowering safety conditions, um, and all of that has come back home, right? And so for American workers as well, it has driven down wages, it has made safety conditions Worse, And so one of the theses of the book is that we've gone back 100 years in terms of labor rights, in terms of what wages can buy, in terms of all of it. And that's kind of hard for us to imagine because we think of, you know, this country as a kind of beacon of progress. And, uh, and, we're, and we're, we're living in a very, very different moment right now, although the crises of the hour, the, the COVID pandemic, the climate change crisis and the rise of fascism maybe have moved us to a point where, you know, we're going to start looking back 75 or 80 years to the New Deal and, you know, that era and say, okay, we, we, we need to rebuild again. Yeah. So it seems that 
part of um, why we have lost so much of progress that was made, part of it is that so much of the work has been exported. Yes. So instead of the garments being made in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where now you can't even afford a, a tiny closet of an apartment, you know, they're being made in, in Bangladesh. And uh, the people who are struggling and, and being paid slave wages and dying in fire still, the people in America who are the, the biggest consumer of the products being made don't see them. Right. And, and that's the really dark side of this international economy, which yes. is that, that ability to move people's hearts much harder when you're around the world and they they can't imagine you the way they can imagine the person they see on the street in the city that they live. That's why Calpone used the Triangle Fire anniversary to draw attention to Bangladesh, because it, it is such an important turning point for so many people in this country. And she knew that, you're right, I mean, we are the biggest consumers of fast fashion in the world. Um, and Europe is, you know, comes right afterwards, and, and some of the wealthy Asian cities. And all of us buy, I think in this country, we buy five times the amount of clothing we bought in 1980, right? Because clothing is now a disposable commodity. Because right? it's so cheap. Because it's so cheap. Because they're not paying the people who make it. Yes. And because they're not paying for the environmental consequences of the way they make it. Yes and on and on. And that's where, uh, of course, we're having this discussion in the Real Organic Project yeah. about how food is grown. And there is a, a strange thing in our culture, which is almost a moral imperative, that if it's cheaper, it must be better. Right. You must be smarter if you're making it cheaper. You're working harder if you're making it cheaper. And actually, what it means most of the time, as far as I can see, is the people who are doing the work are getting paid less, they're less safe, they're less protected, the animals are abused, the land is abused, the yes. climate is abused. So let's talk about agriculture okay. a little bit. You, you definitely got into talking about American farm workers in your book. So could you talk about that? What, how, did you, how did you come to that? Like, how did you pick okay, I'm going to go look at, at, at farm workers in California. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that, that became clear to me, I, I want to come back to something you raised a minute ago, which is this issue of invisibility. The, our whole modern consumer culture is, is predicated on, on everyone remaining invisible, right? We're a service economy. Most jobs are in service work. You don't see hotel housekeepers who clean your room. You leave the room in the morning. It's filthy. You come back. It's, wow, this is so great. You know, like little, little angels cleaned it up. You know, you, you're served in a fast food place and, you know, you're supposed to have a 90 second turnaround time and it's just arms, right? You don't see a face attached. Even sometimes in a restaurant, you don't look at the waiter. You can't remember what your waiter or waitress looks like. It's just arms. So that service economy, um, you know, feeds the way we look at, at fast fashion and the way we look at fast food. And I mean fast food now in terms of fast agriculture, not just McDonald's, but, you know, industrially farmed berries, you know, which are the leading produce um, item. For example, Walmart uh, gets one in four American grocery dollars and their leading item is berries. Right. And so those of us old enough to remember when berries were just a summer treat, we're so pleased that, you know, I wasn't it happened in my adult lifetime. Writing this book, I thought all this stuff happened in my adult lifetime. I wasn't really paying attention. All of a sudden there were these beautiful berries year round. Right. Where did they come from? In the same way that there were suddenly all of these cheap, colorful clothes, you know, that cost less than I had paid for clothing 20 years earlier. So um, so I started to think about um, I wanted to trace in the same way that I wanted to talk to hotel housekeepers and see who really cleans the rooms, right? And then I wanted, you know, to learn more about the lives of the, the Bangladeshi and Cambodian workers who make our clothes. Um, I wanted to have some sense of who the farmers were. And uh, as far as farm workers, I started in California in a kind of almost random way because an old friend of mine, my oldest friend, was working for a group called the Mixteco Community Organizing Project, Mixteco Indígena Community Organizing Project in Ventura County, California. And everyone who worked for that project was an indigenous migrant farm worker from Oaxaca. And when I started to talk to them, 
it was really fascinating because it was the history in some ways of how California became the center of industrial agriculture, feeding most of the nation, um, in particular fruits and berries. And um, so I interviewed a family, the Lopez's, uh, Arsenio Lopez, who's the, um, the director of MICOP, that, this community organizing project, his mother, Anastasia, um, and, uh, and he talked about his grandparents. And his grandfathers came in the 1950s and 60s uh, through the Bracero Project. Bracero means arms, right? Farm workers, it's just what I was talking about. Farm workers were reduced to arms, right? We invited these strong arms to come and harvest our food. And, you know, Braceros had no right, no path to citizenship. They didn't, you know, they didn't have a right to labor laws we were talking about earlier, a minimum wage. Um, but they did have a right to be in the country. And they would come and work and then they'd be taken back over the border and they'd go back to Oaxaca. And that worked for a while to enable them to supplement their own farms, because one thing that I learned in this book is that most farm workers are farmers originally, right? And they're farmers who've lost their land or their farms for one reason or another. And so, um, so you know... This time you're talking about is around when? 50s, 60s. The 50s and 60s. Right. So a lot of people are coming up from Mexico primarily. Yep. And working the land because they'd lost their farms. Yes. And then going back to Mexico. Yes. Well, they still had their farms. The Bracero program worked. They'd come up for a few months. They'd work on, you know, very, very uh, penal, carceral kinds of conditions in these, you know, almost prison-like labor camps. But... But people liked the fact that they didn't have to sneak over the border. You know, it was a legal, it was a legal situation. They did have certain rules and regs about how they would be paid. Um, so they went back and enabled them to support their farms in Oaxaca and other parts of Mexico, right? It enabled them to buy the seed, you know, and do the farming, as you know better than I, is a debt profession, right? You don't get paid until you sell your crops. And so it enabled them to have the money to go through the season. Um, and, it, you know, it, it worked to some extent. Then... The Bracero program was ended, and but they still needed the workers. So it was kind of an unspoken agreement between big California agriculture, including um, the the Ryder Brothers and Driscoll Berries, which was growing at that time, that they would help people sneak across. And so then Arsenio's father and mother came across and they picked strawberries and lettuce. And strawberries came to be known as red gold. It became clear very quickly how much money you could make from industrial, uh, industrially grown strawberries. Now, the other thing that they did is they, uh, Driscoll's helped Mexican-American families and Japanese-Americans sometimes coming back from the camps whose lands had been stolen to share crop, right? There'd be a kind of land they had to buy Driscoll starts. They had to, you know, um, sell through Driscoll's everything, you know, they were completely tied in. Um, but it did, you know, it gave them a certain kind of, um, of farm. And, and Arsenio's father and mother would come and other people of their generation. So now we're talking 70s and 80s. And, you know, and Arsenio said his father, every time La Migra, the border patrol came, he'd have to hide in a hole in the ground. They would have holes in the farm and the workers would go and they would, they would, they would literally go underground and be covered over, um, you know, when, so that, that the border patrols wouldn't, wouldn't deport them. And, you know, there was lots of bribery because this was a deal that, big agriculture was making. So, you know, it, they probably knew where they were and they'd probably been paid off. But so that was that. And it was hard, right? It was hard. Arsenio talked about the, you know, the humiliations and the ways in which, you know, in the Bracero program, his, his grandfathers were made to strip naked and they were deloused, you know, in these long lines of people and how humiliating it was. And he felt really badly. Um, and, you know, that was doubled when they came and worked on some of these even Mexican-American-owned farms because they were indígena, right? And so the, the racial prejudice of, of mestizo Mexicans toward indigenous people came out in the way they were treated. Um, and then, you know, then, you know, as, as Driscoll's, let's just say, and Anacapa, the two big berry companies in California, you know, grew and grew, um, they needed ever more labor. But in the last, you know, since... Um, Proposition 187 in California in the 90s, you know, began to really criminalize and deny services to undocumented immigrants. It became harder and harder um, for people to get across. So Arsenio um, is of this recent generation. Everybody I talked to in the current farm workers, all of them walked across the border. They all ended up in a situation where they were legal. By the time Arsenio, so the third generation of this family coming to pick strawberries, um, was able to come, uh, he, 
uh, it took something like 10, 15 years for his visa to clear. His father was given amnesty under Ronald Reagan's 1986 amnesty. I think it, between three and five million people, uh, I think three million people were given amnesty. And then with their families, about five million people um, were able to stay legally. So Arsenio should have... Was that with a green card or citizenship? Um, they got a path to citizenship. Yeah. So yeah. It, 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 the, the uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, um, became a way that people could come out of the shadows. And, um, but at the same time, it was accompanied by a crackdown. And so that's when you started to have to show your passport when you were hired and workplaces started being raided after that. It was a, you know, kind of a Faustian bargain, although very important for those people who got amnesty. And now we look back and, you know, there's never been that kind of wholesale amnesty of farm workers since that time. But um, Arsenio turned 21 he got, and, and uh, he got the flu. Uh, right when he finally got a visa. And, and while he had the flu, before he got better, he turned 21. And so he no longer had a right to come as his father's child, even though his father was now a citizen. And um, so he walked across the border. And for me, one of the most moving things f was listening to the stories of how people came, you know, and what they suffered and how they were exploited by absolutely everyone, by the, by the coyotes, the guides on that side who they paid, you know, by the Mexican police, by the American border patrol, by the employers who smuggled them in vans, you know, when they got here and put them in terrible living conditions, you know, and my cop was really inspiring for me because they were of a generation that had had enough and they started organizing. And, um, and I talked to a guy named Bernardino Martinez who uh, found that farm workers in California were being policed by these, these fake militaries. They were actually private guards. It's what's happening in the polling places today in Virginia with these fake military guards. Um, anyway, the, these companies would hire private security and have them dressed so that the workers who were new to this country and frightened of being deported thought that they had actually sent soldiers, U.S. soldiers, you know, and police into these fields. And, and they hadn't. Anyway, Bernardino was organizing for the United Farm Workers and to try to get these farm workers uh, covered by the California Labor Relations Act. Farm workers never had the rights that other workers won in the 1930s after Triangle. They were always treated differently. And um, he won, but, but in California, the farm workers who organized at the UFW in the 1970s um, were able to win a California labor, Agricultural Labor Relations Act. So he was trying to win for these indigenous workers in 2012, um, those same rights. And he was literally tasered, right? They were tasering workers in the fields who they thought were organizing, who they thought would get up off their knees and start to speak. And he was literally tasered. And uh, he took the case to county court in Ventura County, and he won. Um, the company was sanctioned, and he described to me you know, the day that, that um, police actually accompanied him to go back to work. And, you know, he's walking up this row with the berries on both sides and the workers looking at him. And he said it felt like a movie. Um, and he said it was very powerful because they looked at them and he wasn't killed and he wasn't deported. Right. And he, you know, he wasn't he was tasered, but he, you know, he wasn't beaten the way they might have thought he would be. And so you know, they, they began to organize more after that. And some of the most inspiring strikes uh, that, that I've seen in modern times took place among berry workers on the West Coast from 2012 to 2015. And I've been talking for a while, so I'll let you ask a question. But um, that also drew me in. I was fascinated by that and what happened. How do you get 50,000 berry pickers to go on strike? It was really something. Yeah. So who were they striking against? So... Um, there was an interesting uh, wave of strikes that actually started among grape pickers in South Africa in the Western Cape. Uh, there's these women who really are the backbone of the wine industry in South Africa. And they went on strike in 2012 because they were being paid in alcohol, you know, and they wanted to be paid in money. Um, and uh, they were being paid a family wage, which meant that the family, the husband was paid and they, you know, they weren't being paid for their labor separately. And they were also struggling against domestic violence and alcoholism and they wanted to have their own money. Um, and they were also being paid a fraction of what they were worth. So their strike spread and, um, you know, in a few days it was 16,000 workers, really the most 
marginalized workers in South Africa. And by the time it was done, they'd set fields on fire and they um, had doubled their wage. And the unions were shocked because the unions were male dominated and they didn't take them seriously. And by the end, they were seeing one of the big labor events in recent South African history. And interestingly enough, these blueberry pickers, these indigenous blueberry pickers in Washington state um, for Sakuma Berry um, saw videos on their cell phones. They were being sent videos by these workers and they were really fascinated and they began to organize. Um, and so, you know, inspired by this, this strike half a world away, um, they, they began to organize and they went on strike repeatedly against Sakuma Berry. And um, Sakuma Berry was one of those companies that was hiring fake, you know, fake military guards like Anacapa, you know, strawberries in California. And they started uh, a new kind of labor union. It wasn't the United Farm Workers, which, you know, its history got complicated and they didn't feel represented by them. At the very least, they felt that that was a group that was biased in favor of mestizos and they wanted an indigenous farm workers union. So they started it and it started to spread down the West Coast. And um, so uh, we have, you know, the California Ventura County people. And then the most amazing part of the strike took place across the border in Baja, California, where most of the berries for Walmart were grown for Costco and um, these were these vast farms in Baja, and, uh, and the workers went on strike in the spring of 2015 over water, right? That's one of the issues that's really central to these movements that I've looked at. They had no access to clean water. Um, they had to pay for water. They were bathing their children in um, polluted, toxic water, and they wanted, so the strike was for water, for starters. Um, and they were getting, you know, they were getting $6 a day for their work, um, for these 12-hour days. In and the state of California. No, Baja, California, across the border. It's the state Baja of Mexico. Baja, California is Mexico. Baja, California is Mexico. Okay, And it's, it's over the border, and they, they showed that just over the border in the U.S., in San Diego, you know, a very affluent California city, um, a gallon of milk cost the same as it cost across the border in San Quintin, where many of these farms were. And they said, OK, so so if the cost of of food and housing is similar to what it is in California, you really understand what it means to pay people six dollars a day. What would a, what would somebody in the state of California be getting paid at that time? Um, the farm workers, yeah, the farm, farm workers farm. were getting the lucky ones were getting eight or nine dollars an hour. So, um, you know, many of them were getting less. But um, and, and many of them, I mean, I can get into the conditions in California in a minute and why they were paid less. They were paid often by the box, not by the hour, um, which, you know, sped up labor and which, by, you know, made things better for young, strong people. But as you got older and more tired, you know, it was harder to, to make a living anyway. The strike in San Quentin was incredible. It spread across the peninsula, just like the, the Cape, uh, Western Cape grape strike in uh, South Africa. And, um, and the government sent in uh, these tanks that were called sharks. And, um, and the sharks went through knocking down the worker shacks and, you know, and sowing terror in their families and among their children. And you had children bathing in this toxic water and getting terrible sores and, and illnesses. And so they just got mad and they marched to the border and, um, and the, the Pan American Highway. And ultimately 50,000 people were out on strike. They were burning vehicles and leaving them in the middle of the roads to stop the buses from going. And the strike went on for months. And what was really interesting is that ultimately um, there was intervention by Walmart, which negotiated with the governor of the state of Baja California to try to get these folks recognized so they could get payment into social security benefits. Um, they could get, you know, a, somewhat of a living wage. Their wage went up to 11 something an hour, 11 something a day. Um, and, uh, and, 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 um, recognition of, of their unions. And so, um, they realized something that's become really key to farm workers all over, including farm workers, dairy workers in Vermont, right? That you, you can't just squeeze the farmer, right? Because the farmer, in these cases, it was industrial agriculture in the case of Driscoll's, but 
you know, in a lot of cases, even Sakuma Berry, which was, you know, it's a big, it's the biggest blueberry grower in the country, but, um, you know, people, farmers were going out of business, right? They realized that in many cases they would start, they needed to, to look at who the biggest buyers were. Um, and that's what Florida tomato pickers did too. They started to look at who are the big buyers. So uh, the Florida tomato pickers um, targeted fast food restaurants. Taco Bell was the first to settle. Um, the berry pickers targeted Walmart and Walmart again, they knew that you know, Walmart needed those berries, right? It wasn't worth it to them to have that strike. So, um, and, in, and in this state, uh, Migrant Justice, the Dairy Workers Organization targeted Ben and Jerry's and now Cabot and Hannaford's, the biggest buyers of milk and cream in Vermont. How much of the, of the concern on the part of things like Walmart are about the social media campaign as opposed to just, well, we can't get the berries, but now millions of people, our customers, are saying we look very bad. It's all of it. You know, um, social media has fueled this global uprising against poverty wages that, that my book is about because, um, because you don't have to wait for professional media to cover an event, right? And so you can make McDonald's look bad by having a mock trial of Ronald McDonald for his crimes on the streets of Tokyo, right? And you can, you know, you can make Walmart look bad. Um, what's interesting, though, is that Walmart... S- has actually played a, an important role in um, making standards better for agricultural workers. They also signed the Fair Food Agreement with the Florida tomato pickers. Immokalee workers. The Immokalee workers. And when they did so, it was so um, uh, important to global agriculture that the UN rep- Special Rapporteur for Agricultural Labor Conditions came and witnessed the signing and talked about how we could you know, scale up this fair food program. For their own workers, no. I mean, Walmart, Walmart is historically awful to their own workers, and they are one of the stories in my book. Um, but it is interesting that the, the agricultural workers targeting Walmart were successful, right, in that Walmart was willing to agree to pay farmers a little more for their produce if they guaranteed um, a certain minimum wage living standards for agricultural workers, zero tolerance for sexual violence in the fields, um, and... Um, the right to organize. So I think that's really interesting. Walmart doesn't recognize the right to unionize of its own workers in the United States, right? But they did sign that deal with Florida tomato growers and they did help the berry pickers in Mexico and and up the West Coast. Yeah. All right. So this is so interesting because this is, these are the people who grow our food. Yep. These are the people who plant and harvest the food that we eat. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's so much uh, discussion, appropriate discussion right now, about the uh, loss of farmers of color in America. And what everyone is talking about when they say that is they mean farmers who own their farmland, right. farmers of farm owners of color. Right. And and it, it is an important subject, and it's been a terrible thing that's happened, but. The vast majority of people who farm in this country are people of color. Yeah. Right? Yeah. As is in the world. As I mean, in the world. you know, but, but in this country too, they're mostly, I don't know, are they mostly undocumented? Yeah. So the majority of these farm workers are undocumented. The majority of farm workers around the world, of migrant farm workers, are undocumented because they're part of this epic global migration. It's 14 million people right now. Um, and no, it's more than that. It's one in 14 people on earth who are on the road um, because they have lost their farms, because they have lost their lands, because of political violence, because of war. Um, And many of them were farmers. Most of them were farmers before they got on the road. And they're the ones who supply labor for um, bigger farms all around the world. I heard Al Gore give a talk two days ago about the impact of climate change on agriculture. And he was just talking about the huge number of people being pushed off the land right now because they literally can't survive where they are. Yeah. And it's not just that. I mean, one of the least covered, most important stories of our recent age 
is the global land grab after the 2008 crash, when um, McKinsey and other um, analysts were telling business people, you know, invest in land. And land changed hands, particularly in Africa and South Asia and Southeast Asia, at a rate that was just staggering. You know, parcels the size of countries, right? Land, you know, was taken away from people, I think in, in you know, in, in one area in, South, in Southeast Asia, it's the size of New Zealand. It's that much land, right? In another, there was a parcel the size of Italy. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is Chinese investment. It's these farms that exist on a scale that we can't even imagine. And, um, and then there were, you know, big corporate investors, you know, from the United States and other parts of the world, too. They, so many farmers lost their land as a result of the 2008 land grab that, you know, they really fueled this global migration. Um, similarly, you know, before that, to go back before that, NAFTA, right? Donald Trump talks about all the ways in which the North American Free Trade Agreement harmed American producers. Uh, it harmed Mexican producers way more. Um, it was something like one in 10 uh, farmers there lost their farms, lost their land. The number of people who came across the country doubled. Um, you know, across the border to our country doubled. So, and the reason also was that, you know, Mexico was flooded with cheap bioengineered American corn. And so all of these small Oaxacan growers who'd been able to survive on their, you know, there were so many species. I think there were 2,000 species of corn in Oaxaca, all different, all grown, you know, with a proprietary, you know, style and all with different taste and nutritional value. And, you know, this, one of the things that happened is that the um, bioengineered corn, when it started to be planted in the mountains there, destroyed um, the indigenous corn. So all of that is, is part of what's happened to, to small farmers and why small farmers are part of this global movement um, epitomized by a group called Via Campesina, the Peasant's Way, the Farmer's Road, um, which just, re they represent, they said, people who work the earth. Um, they don't differentiate between farm workers and farmers who own their land. They feel like they're in the same struggle and, and that they're the, they're the um, proprietors of the earth, right? So that they have responsibility to fight, fight climate change, but also that they have certain rights as the stewards of the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, of course, one of the things that we're dealing with in the Real Organic Project is the colonization of the organic brand by industrial agriculture, by huge corporate enterprises that have tremendous amount of influence. And, uh, you know, uh, they can talk to the senator anytime they want. So I'm curious for these big strikes, could you say, uh, when we talk about Driscoll's, biggest berry company in the world. Uh, over 50% of the berries sold in the world are Driscoll's berries. 70% yeah. of the organic berries are Driscoll's berries. Wow. Uh, un unbelievable monopoly. So I'm curious, so the conditions for a Driscoll's organic pr production unit wouldn't be any better or worse than for a non-organic one. It's, it's all the same? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, you know, we've, we've talked about Swantonberry in Santa Cruz, which attempted to be the first union organic berry, strawberry uh, farm in the United States. And, uh, and they really, you know, the folks who, who ran that farm, you know, kind of came out of 60s hippie collective agriculture. Really, they said that it was their workers who led them to believe that, you know, you can't have a healthy can produce a healthy product that's healthy for the world by, you know, creating a labor environment that's unhealthy for your workers, right? That it's all of a, it's all of a piece. You have to think holistically. So, um, and he really struggled. He said he really struggled to um, talk to other organic farmers and also organic consumers. He said he, you know, it was really hard to get organic farmers to believe that labor justice was part of the project. And, um, you know, I think, I, I think that's something we've talked about and that, you know, is really much, very much on the table right now, right? How do you identify food in terms of labor justice? I, you know, I've had, I've struggled, you know, with our food co-op. I've struggled, you know, with other sellers of organic food to, to ask them to label 
these foods not just as organic, but in terms of the kinds of conditions um, that that workers are subject to. And you know, the one area in which I think things may be better for organic uh, producers, you know, sometimes is because the stuff that's sprayed on non-organic berries is so toxic to the earth and the atmosphere, and no one has suffered more from that than farm workers and their children who was born born with birth defects and hydrocephaly and all kinds of terrible stuff. So, um, but there's another dimension. Even industrial agriculture, organic agriculture, is better than industrial chemical agriculture. Yes. So yeah. absolutely, let, yeah. let us celebrate that. Yeah, I'm sorry, so go ahead. Yeah, but um, in the way that, let's say, industrial organic agriculture attempts to control, you know, the way in which, for example, all those sharecropped farms that, that Driscoll's feeds to and Anacapa feeds to, where they have to use their starts, their methods, their soil, you know, their chemicals, their pesticides, I mean, that is reproduced around the world. And, um, and as a result, real organic farmers and some of those who are the leaders of Via Campesina, like an organic uh, rice farmer from uh, Zimbabwe named Elizabeth Mopofu, um, talk about how, you know, one of the things they always did was have seed exchanges, right? They would have seed repositories. They would keep the very best seed. The experts in seed would go out and pick, you know, the, the seed at the end of the the season and figure out the very best seed and they'd save it and they would, you know, work, they would figure out what grew best under those conditions and what produced the most flavorful and the most, you know, pest resistant and the most cold resistant kinds of crops. And, you know, that, that element of farming, which is organic farming in the truest sense of the word in places like the Philippines, where it's been going on with rice at the rice terraces for 2000 years and in Africa and in Haiti, um, it started to disappear because, again, you got these um, bioengineered seeds that the government would um, would buy from, you know, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank would say, OK, you can have loans to get out of debt if you buy these Monsanto seeds and then you distribute them to your farmers. So they would distribute them and say, you guys have to grow with these. And, you know, the farmers would ultimately unintentionally destroy the wild breeds. Um, of, of rice, for example, which is one of the, like corn, one of the crops that, whose biodiversity disappeared. So I'm really interested in, in them because they, they call it agroecology, but they are, you know, they're organic farmers in all of these places. And so seed exchange has become a form of civil disobedience. That was one of the most fascinating little facts I came across in this book. All across Africa and Asia, um, they're having seed exchanges when it's against the law because, you know, Monsanto is claiming into, you know, intellectual property rights for their seeds. Um, so there is, there is a real organic project going on in, you know, Zimbabwe and it's going on in, you know, the, the rice terraces outside of Manila. It's really interesting. Yeah. And in India. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, uh, everything that we're trying to do is part of an international movement. It, it, uh, we are literally the market for much of the world. And so a lot of the rest of the world is selling into America. And we have so much influence over things like, obviously, the chemical agriculture comes from American industry. But uh, so does a lot of the, the organic standards, which is why so many people in the world are concerned about what's happening in America. Yeah. Because they know if, if America says this or that is allowed, they're, they're not going to be able to hold the line forever. They're going to try. But it's well, going to be very hard. What's interesting is that um, what saved the rice cultivators in the Philippine rice terraces, again, 2,000 years old, um, was being able to sell to this country with the label organic and being able to sell to Europe because they realized that people would pay more for heirloom organic rice. And that enabled people to have enough to stay on their land, right? And enough to, you know, to convince their children, okay, you, we can build a better house, you can stay, we can get internet, right? We can get phone service and you can stay and have a relatively modern life and make a living. So organic, you know, even though the Philippine rice growers were practicing true organic, you know, thousands of years before this country existed, right? The growth of organic agriculture and its markets in this country and in Europe, it was able to save them, you know, now, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, that's right. And another reason why what we do is important and why the choices that we make as eaters affect how people are going to farm all over the world. Yeah. 
Uh, I just wanted to make a call out to Swanton Berry Farm, Jim Cochran. Jim Cochran, thank you, had blanked on his name. Is, you know, a real pioneer. And um, I know when he started to have these conversations about labor out in California, he was kind of, uh, you know, a prophet in the wilderness. Um, it was not popular because most farmers, organic or conventional, felt up against the wall to make a living. And now we're talking about paying the people more. And again, that, that movement has got to be coupled to a response in the marketplace. Yeah. The, the eaters have got to support better wages for farm workers in order for farm workers to get it because there isn't much left otherwise. Well, one of the things um, Jim Cochran became involved in um, later on is uh, this project in California, which exists in many parts of the country now, these food policy councils, and um, called it something like the Real Vision Project. I don't think that's the right name, but it's a, it was a project that was involved 200 growers in California, and it was um, trying to get state funds to subsidize organic, the sale of organic produce um, so that people could afford it, you know, on food stamps. And, you know, that this is spreading as, as an idea all over the country. And I think it's an alternative to this kind of strictly capitalist market, right, to say, okay, it is in the interest of, of let's say, state governments to help preserve the health of its people, of uh, these states' peoples, and to help preserve the health of the land by keeping organic farms going and to help, you know, preserve small farming, right, to uh, provide these subsidies and, and distribution points so that, um, you know, sometimes it's as little as food stamps being accepted in farmers markets. And sometimes it's, you know, drop offs where, you know, the food that that poor people are getting is is much less expensive than, you know, organic food would normally be. So, um, you know, I think we need to think in a, in a broader way than a strictly consumer producer mentality. Yeah. It's exactly what they're doing in Denmark, of course. Yes. <laughs> you know, those days. But, you know, they are. So they, one of the things they've done is they've moved a lot of the institutional buying in Denmark to be as organic as possible. And uh, that, of course, really helps because they believe exactly what you said. It's better for all citizens for organic farmers to flourish because there are so many secondary benefits in terms of water quality and air quality and community, social welfare, you know, so that uh, they've committed a fair amount of money to uh, trying to take the country as much organic as they can. That's great. It's very inspiring. And, you know, to come back to your point about conscious consumers, um, that's one of those places with extremely conscious consumers as, um, as Sweden is. And so it's not accidental you know, that, I mean, I feel like those consumers, for example, during the South African grape strike in 2012, um, the Robertson's Winery, which was one of the worst and one of the last to settle, um, the consumers, you know, pressured and the labor unions in Denmark made the supermarkets take Robertson's wine off the shelves. And since they were the biggest market for, for South African wine, uh, Denmark and Scandinavia in general, right, it, it you know, it, it then came back to the farm workers, right? And, and, and that w it wasn't just, you know, about about the sale, though, in their country, Denmark said, OK, we'll put the bottles back on the shelves if you let us send our union reps to look at the labor conditions in your fields. Right. Same thing with in Sweden with H&M, the biggest fast clothing producer in the world. Um, the reason why H&M is better, it's not great, but it's better than other companies in places like Cambodia and Bangladesh is because their consumers um, have been really have been really militant and kind of pressed the company to do that. So. You know, we need all the parts. We need consumers. We need labor. We need government. We need conscious producers, conscious capitalists. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, what do you think we can do? I, I of course, get that question. And uh, it's a daunting question. Yeah. Uh, because it's not, it's not easy what any individual can do except to get organized and to you know, to, to work together with other like-minded people and create our awareness. But what are your thoughts? You, you've, been, you've been thinking about this a long time, Annalise. You know, strictly in terms of produce, I think, you know, supporting the businesses that have done right by their workers and 
um, and, and convincing stores, which, you know, I've tried unsuccessfully to do, um, to really highlight those brands, right? To really highlight Swantonberry, to really highlight, you know, Sukuma's unionized now. You can buy Sukuma blueberries again. You know, there are unionized, you know, um, tomato fields. And, you know, I think, I, I think we just, it is incumbent upon us to not just say, oh, wow, you know, all these great new, you know, foods and clothing and all this stuff just appeared and, you know, our rooms and hotels just get cleaned. It's, it's incumbent upon us to be conscious and to learn um, and to see that everything's interconnected. And, um, and I recognize that American wages overall have been stuck for 40 years. Um, and it is, it is only this living wage movement since 2012 of all these groups that I've been writing about that has started to nudge American wages up. And the fact that we could even talk about you know, a national $15 wage that if the Democrats win the election in two weeks, they're talking about a national $15 wage. That was, that was thought to be crazy a couple of years ago. Um, and so, you know, sustained struggle, solidarity between, you know, workers of different kinds. So one of the things that moves me so much is that Walmart workers, right, on their minimal salaries, chipped in to bring Kalpona Actor, the leader of the Bangladeshi garment workers who make the clothes sold in Walmarts, to the Walmart shareholders meeting so she could stand in front of the Walton family and say it would cost 1%, not of your corporate incomes, but of your personal annual incomes, 1% to make all the factories in Bangladesh safe. So nobody had to die making clothes in this country. Right. And I just I was so touched by the fact that you had Walmart workers who are so oppressed in so many ways themselves, you know, standing together with the Bangladeshi garment workers and, on, you know, walking picket lines with them at the children's place in New Jersey with no more fires, you know, not one more fire signs. Um, so I just think we need a sense of our interdependence. It's not easy right now with 30 million Americans unemployed. You know, we're obviously going to want to go for the cheaper stuff, right? But um, I think buying, you know, clothing less frequently, buying berries maybe in the summer <laughs> and uh, freezing them, um, but also supporting, you know, learning, digging in, seeing who, you know, who, who treats their workers right. So um, very close to home, right? Migrant justice, the dairy workers recognize that Vermont dairy farmers probably couldn't afford much more than, than they were giving, that most of them were, were on the brink of disaster. So they went after Ben & Jerry's, the biggest buyer in Vermont, and of, of milk and cream, and said, will you, will you commit to paying more to the farmers who um, house workers in heated uh, housing during a Vermont winter, who give them real beds, who um, you know, pay them at least $10 an hour, um, they, you know, they had a whole series of, of demands and it took two or three years, but, um, uh, as Kiki Balcazar, who's, uh, the founder of, of Migrant Justice and an undocumented worker who came to Vermont at 16, um, you know, said Ben and Jerry's, that's their market share, right? They're the conscious company. He said, you're conscious about bovine growth hormone and you're conscious about, you know, this and that and organic soil and everything. And what about the people who milk the cows who literally give you the cream you make your ice cream with. And it took a long time of embarrassing Ben and Jerry's, but ultimately they were able to, and Ben and Jerry's signed on, and now they're going after Hannaford's, and I think Cabot will probably be next. Um, but I think embarrassing these corporations matters. And again, social media, we all have phones, right? You can, you can actually have some impact on a corporation's bottom line. These guys were showing up, you know, the, the tomato for the Immokalee workers, they were on a truth tour for 17 years, right, trying to embarrass these companies and get some, you know, and they did get some justice. And, you know, the migrant justice folks were touring around the country in front of Ben and Jerry's stores and everywhere Ben and Jerry's official spoke, um, you know, for, for three years, you know, until they finally made a difference. Same thing with Nike, right? The Nike, Nike workers also, you know, are still showing up in front of Nike to embarrass them. And Nike launched a whole big campaign to try to pretend that things were better. Um, so all of it, we have responsibility and there's a lot that can be done. I mean, the one thing that I want to say is that, you know, the, uh, federal judge who looked at one of the original cases of tra human trafficking in the tomato fields of Florida um, back when this all started in the uh, early 2000s said that the 
Florida tomato fields have gone from being what she called ground zero for modern slavery to a model agricultural workplace that we'd like to reproduce around the world. So these movements have been successful. And I think if we support them and we recognize that success is possible, then, you know, otherwise it's easy to become overwhelmed. But success is possible and we can eat foods that are healthy in every sense. Annalise Orlick, that is... Uh, a wonderful place for us to end. So thank you so much for coming over and talking. Thanks, dear Dave. <laughs> thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review for each episode that you enjoyed. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to our conversation, is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 33. Please join us next time for an interview with Francis Tickey. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms.